0: Amen. I was struggling with a headache this morning, and so my son Andrew said that he would fill in for me if I needed him to. So I told him I'd call on him, but Andrew, I think with that song, I'm just going to go ahead and preach, all right? Because that's the way to go into it. Well, it's so good to be here, and um, today, of course, we're going to have a busy day in front of us as we welcome thousands of guests to First Baptist for the Celebration of Liberty. Uh, I was told that might happen, so I'm probably going to hang with this mic. I'll stay here at the pulpit in case that mic gives me trouble. But I'm excited to see it, just like I know so many of you are. And, uh, of course, I know there's a lot of work that's been put into it. And it helps us remember the blessing we have in being part of such an incredible nation. So today, I want to consider a blessed nation in the context of a psalm. This summer, we're focusing on the book of the Psalms. And we all find a lot of comfort there. I'm sure you're just like me, and uh, it's a, I don't know if it's the poetic language. It's because it deals with so much highs and so many lows that I can identify with it. But we think, what is it about the book of Psalms? You know, it's the longest book of the Bible, contains the shortest chapter and the longest chapter. It has a multitude of authors, a whole lot of different situations that are brought up uh, because of the Psalms. But what is it about the Psalms that keeps drawing us back to it? Well, I think one of the things uh, that's there is because we find Christ in the Psalms. He spent time here. So as we give out these books to guests called the Songs of Jesus, it's a devotional that carries you through the book of the Psalms because we know that the Lord meditated on this. He taught from it. But not only that, I think that in the book of the Psalms we find Christ because there is more prophecy about Jesus in the book of Psalms than there is in any other Old Testament book. And there's a whole collection of books called Prophets in the Old Testament, but it's Psalms that refers to Jesus more than any of the other Old Testament books. And so today we're going to be in Psalm 2, which is a psalm of prophecy. In fact, many of the words of Psalm 2 are carried through into the New Testament. You read them in the Gospels. You read the words even in the, uh, the Acts of the Apostles. And most of the Psalms carry a heading. They kind of tell us maybe a little bit about context. They tell us who wrote them or what they were written for. But Psalm 2, just like Psalm 1, does not carry a heading. So we're not really, uh, we're not told exactly who wrote it. But I will tell you this, tradition says David wrote it. But not only that, in the New Testament, the scriptures say that David is the author of Psalm 2. And so um, we've looked at two wisdom psalms over the last couple of weeks. But today we're coming to Psalm 2, which is a a psalm of prophecy, but it's categorized as a royal psalm. That means it focuses on, or the royal psalms, I guess, is a collection, focus on matters related to the nation of Israel, the political, social, and responsibilities of the king of Israel. And Psalm 2 primarily celebrates, as a royal psalm, the divine selection of the Davidic king, that it is God who appointed the kings of Israel. Now, some argue that Psalm 2 is really a um, continuation of Psalm 1, that they actually were written to be read together. Well, it's not quite divided up that way, but since we did Psalm 1 last week, we're going to do Psalm 2 this week. Uh, Calvin Falkenberry asked me if I'm just going to keep preaching through in order, and we're not going to do that, okay? So we'll move around a little bit. We only have a few more weeks that will be in the Psalms. But I want to invite you now to look with me at Psalm 2. I'm going to read to you the whole Psalm, uh, verses 1 through 12. It says, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. The psalmist declares or expresses astonishment at the plotting of the mass of humanity against God. What the psalm offers for us this morning is an assertion that the blessed nation, even the blessed person, is the one who takes refuge in God. This psalm is ordered with four stanzas. It's four stanzas made up of three verses each. We're going to focus primarily on the first three stanzas under the headings of the rebellion of man, the response of God, and the rule of the Son. We'll reference the fourth stanza as part of the conclusion. But I want to invite you to look for at the first stanza and the rebellion of man beginning there in verse 1. So the psalmist opens with a question. Of course, the New Testament affirms that David's the author. So we can say, David is the one who's looking around. And he says, why? He, he's looking at the, uh, the context here, I guess, is on the Gentile nations that surround Israel. And he's, they're described as being in an uproar, as raging. They're devising, they're plotting, they're imagining, how can, we overthrow a na- or how can we overthrow a nation or establish a new order for all of mankind? And it seems that this uproar is in reference to God's rule and God's reign. They're rebelling against God's authority, against his word, his truth, his precepts. And David is thinking, can't you see the benefits of being under the authority of God? Can't you see the, be the, see the benefit of being under the rule and the reign of God, what that provides for us? Now, of course, this is a royal psalm, and the context is the Davidic throne. So the nations are plotting against the kingdom of Israel. Now, can you imagine 2,500 years ago, the newspapers would have sounded just like they do today. The nations are plotting against Israel. So Solomon, I guess, is right. Nothing new under the sun. But God's purpose at the time of David was for Israel to demonstrate to the world the power and the goodness of God so that the nations of the world would acknowledge God, his rule, and his authority. And if you'll notice in verse 2, the nations are coming together in really this unholy alliance against one enemy, against the Lord and his anointed. In other words, nations that were previously at odds. They had problems with one another on a various number of issues, but all of a sudden they found common ground in a common enemy with the Lord and the Lord's anointed. Charles Spurgeon wrote, We have in these first three verses a description of the hatred of human nature against the Christ of God. Human nature, which is filled and led and guided by sin, hates God. God. Hates God the Father, has hatred towards God the Son. And so mankind forms this unholy alliance, launches a um, campaign to dethrone God. And so they're devising a plan. They want freedom from God. That's what they're declaring. But verse 1 says what? They do so in vain. That's what they're doing. It's in vain because it will not happen. Because God cannot be overthrown. God cannot be dethroned. So let me give you the clearest example I think that we have in the scriptures of this happening, clearest example I can think of in in total. Acts 4 tells about a time when Peter uh, Peter and John, they are now leading the church forward after Pentecost. They have performed a miracle. They're preaching. People are responding. The chief priests are alarmed by it, so they pull in Peter and John. They tell them they're going to have to stop preaching, and they say, well, we're not going to be able to do it. Well, they don't really have a reason to punish them, and so they warn them, and then they release them. And so what happens? Well, Acts 4, verse 23 says, When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said... See if you recognize this. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand. And the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So Psalm 2 is prophetically fulfilled in the arrest, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus. The kingdoms of the earth conspired against him, against the Lord's anointed, against Jesus, And so you have to imagine here, the Jews, along with the Romans, who had all kinds of problems with each other, said, We've got one common enemy. And the common enemy is Jesus. So they aligned together. But they point out, even that was God's plan. He knew this would occur, He planned for this to occur. So the royal psalm is not just about David's throne in Jerusalem, but is prophetically speaking of the rule of the Messiah. So the Lord's anointed at the time of the writing was the king who's on David's throne. But in the exile, after they rebel and they're exiled, all of a sudden the anointed one is the one they're hoping to come, the Messiah, the soon-and-coming king who will establish Israel to its former glory and take over David's rightful throne. And at the coming of Christ, it was obvious that the Lord's anointed was Jesus. So this psalm analyzed the world's declaration of independence from God. And David says it's vain, but nonetheless, the rebellion is real. And I have to say that in these last days that we find ourselves, I think the rebellion is getting louder. I don't know if you've noticed. It just seems like the voices against God get stronger. People say things out in the light, out in public that they never would have said before. So today we can see the vain plots of man against the rule of God and his anointed son Jesus even in our own nation, even in our own community. This week we celebrate 243 years of freedom for the United States from the rule of a monarch. Our forebears threw off the British cords and fetters 243 years ago through war and then the establishment of a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And as American Christians, I think sometimes we read Psalm 2 and we see ourselves there. We see America on the pages. But we have to be reminded that the the covenantal anointed one that's referenced here is ancient Israel's king, not some modern American leader. It foretells of the coming of Jesus. Yet we live in a society that is striving to gain freedom from God. We want freedom from God's rule. We want freedom from God's word. The cries for freedom are cries to tear fetters apart and to cast off cords of God's authority in our society, but also in our lives and even in our relationships. I think we see it in the debate over the life of the unborn, the value of human life. I think it happens as we try to redefine morality. We do that in the arena of marriage, of gender, of love. I think it also happens when we ignore the cries of the oppressed. We ignore the cries of the outcast. We ignore the cries of those that are suffering, of those that are needy and impoverished. We want to be freed from kind of the moral compass that's found in the scriptures. Everyone wants to do what's right in their own eyes just like Israel did well I see a great temptation for us to do this in the arena of politics we seem to primarily align ourselves with a party or with a platform or with a person rather than the truths of God's word we double down on certain issues because we find them offensive appalling and in conflict with our faith but they also kind of reinforce maybe the party or the platform or the person that we support And then there are other things that we bat our eyes at that scriptures uh, demand action on because it seems to benefit somebody else and it's like, well, we don't see that as important. So it's not that we want to tear away all fetters. We just want to tear away those that make us feel a little bit inconvenienced or less important. So on the anniversary of our nation's birth, I want to remind you that our allegiance is first of all to the King of Kings. So we are surrounded, of course, this morning with American flags as we prepare for the celebration of liberty that we will present this afternoon. Do you know why we celebrate liberty? Because we have it. We have unique freedoms in this country that the majority of the world does not even have access to. And the freedoms were purchased by a cost, the cost of lives. We fought wars to protect these freedoms. But the other part is that we see these freedoms as a gift from God. He has blessed us with these. So people all over the world pray for liberty. We have it, so we better thank God we've got it. And we can unashamedly celebrate the liberties we have as Americans because it is a blessing. But our allegiance to this country is in no way even close to the allegiance we pledge to the Lamb. We are sojourners. We are strangers and aliens in this land. So if you are proud enough to wave an American flag, you ought to be bold to share what you believe about Jesus. But I wanna challenge you to ask this single question as application from the first stanza. And it's this, and it's very personal. Am I rebelling against God? Because when we read this Psalm, we can see all kinds of other people that are, but what about me? Am I rebelling against God? Perhaps it's in your political activities. Or maybe it's in the way that you approach your finances. You don't want underneath the Lord's leadership there. Or maybe it's in the way that you perform your job. Or as a student. Or interact with other people. Are you seeking freedom from the rule of God's law in your life to benefit you in a place where you want permission to live a certain way? God cannot be dethroned. Remember that. They did it in vain, but you can live in rebellion. So how does God respond to man's rebellion? Well, in the second stanza here, in verse 4, we see that God is not unaware of what the nations are doing. He's not unaware of their rage, of their conspiring here. So not only that, not just with the nations, but also with you. He's not unaware of where you're blurring the lines. He's not unaware of where you're in rebellion against his precepts. But he's also not concerned that your rebellion, the nation's rebellion, is going to dethrone him. is going to pull him off of his throne some way. In verse 4, it says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Well, I have to admit to you that I find that as a really unsettling image in some ways. God laughs. God scoffs. It just sounds so elitist. It sounds so cold-hearted. But there's a principle here, and this is the principle. God is so secure and powerful on his throne that a coalition of rebellious human hearts does not threaten his reign or his rule. He's not shaken by it. And so for the Jews who are reading this at the time it's written, the psalm is pointing towards the way that God undergirds the Davidic throne. So as the nations are around Israel are kind of striving or uh, coming against Israel, They are given this visual aid of a God who is watching over it all and is not shaken. It was a nationalistic belief that God would establish his throne forevermore. So not only this laugh and scoff, but verse 5 says, Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. In other words, he's going to deliver a rebuke. We said last week that God will speak in judgment. It is unavoidable. It is undeniable. But this royal theme is carried through verse 6 where God says, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. It underscores the idea that God lifted up the leader of Israel. He placed him there. He secured it. And so the nations of the world would meet a force to be reckoned with if they came against God. And so today we're reminded that Jesus the Messiah is the son of David who sits on the Davidic throne and will reign over all the earth. And we're reminded from this psalm that it is God who installs leaders. David was an unexpected king. As uh, God rejected Saul, he told Samuel to go to Bethlehem, to go to the house of Jesse, because it's there he would reveal to him who he had chose to lead Israel. So he goes, and in 1 Samuel 16, verse 6, it says, When they entered, he looked at Eliab, that's uh, Jesse's son, and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Next Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the children? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. And behold, he is tending the sheep. God installs leaders. He chose the youngest son. He chose the shepherd. And he was the one that God chose to be king over Israel, Israel's greatest king. Well, of course, Israel rebelled, and in the exile, there was hope that somebody would come and restore former glory. In Jesus, we found God's anointed, and now today, we await Christ's return, where we know he will establish his rule on this earth. So God raises and installs leaders. So as Christians, we are to live in subjection to the authorities. Romans 13.1 says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Well, that carries through to today. God is the one who raises up leaders, He establishes them. Secondly, as Christian citizens, as we've already said this morning, we are to pray for those in authority. 1 Timothy 2 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. For kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. I want you to imagine this in context. Paul's writing this to Timothy. He's at Ephesus, the church there, but it's applicable for all the churches. And think of the magnitude of this request. He is insisting that the church prays for emperors like Nero, for proconsuls like Gallio, for governors like Pilate, for Kings like Herod. Well, I know that the political discourse in our world makes you feel like those on the other side from you politically are akin to Nero or Herod. They are not. They're generally men and women of goodwill who see the world differently than you do. And so your prayers should not be affected by who's there. You pray for them because they are there. Do you know why? Because no king, no president... No governor, no leader, no ayatollah can stay the hand of the Lord when he has purpose to do a thing. And great things can occur because of the actions of leaders. So we pray for our leaders. And so I'd ask you to do that. Both those here in our congregation are joining us online or television. You pray. Make it a habit. You pray for our leaders. Pray for their spiritual condition. Pray that God would use them to accomplish great things purposes because because of or even in spite of who they are because god does that he says the leaders are like water in his hands and can i add that very often the actions of political leaders will affect the conditions that we face for the spread of the gospel in the world so you pray you pray for our president for a vice president Pray for the constitutional office, uh, the cabinet there. Pray for our governor and lieutenant governor, the constitutional officers there, the legislative branch, the judges, the courts, mayors, sheriff. You pray for them. Now, I'm not so, I, I really struggled for a long time at intercessory prayer. And so I had to make a schedule. And so I'll just tell you what mine is. On Thursdays, I have written down all kinds of names that I pray of people that are in leadership. Now I pray with them as, as God brings them to mind at other times. But every Thursday, you can know that's what I'm praying for. I pray for those who are our leaders. So God responds to man's rebellion, and we now see the rule of God's son in verses 7 through 9. So the psalmist is now sharing the decree of the Lord in reference to this covenantal relationship between God and the heirs to David's throne. God would be with David. He would even correct him because he says, you're my son. And what does a father do? Corrects his son. So he does that. We see it in scripture. There's evidence of it. Then he promises an inheritance of the nations. And so in verse 8, it says, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Now, this is interesting, particularly because there was no promise of world domination given to Israel. Israel would be a blessing to the nations. Israel would also trample over its enemies. But global dominion was not really implied in the covenant. What what does seem to be included is that Israel will be God's conduit for blessing the world and for delivering his reign over the world. However, this is where we see clearly the prophecy of the coming Messiah. In fact, Acts in Hebrews references verse 7 in speaking of Jesus and the relationship he has to God as God's only begotten son. So prophetically, it's in Jesus that global dominion is fulfilled. We know that Jesus commissions his followers, that includes you and me, to carry his gospel to all nations. For all nations will be in his inheritance. He says that at at the throne, at the foot of the throne, will be representatives from every tongue and every tribe. So to the ends of the earth. But an interesting thing happens at the start of Jesus' ministry. He's led out to the wilderness. He's tempted by Satan. And I believe one of those temptations connects very specifically to Psalm 2, these verses we've just read. In Luke 4, 5 and through 5 through 7, this is the second temptation, it says, And he led him, that's Jesus, led Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus had been promised an inheritance of the nations. And now Satan is saying, I'll give it to you. You don't have to do anything else. You don't have to wait. You don't. None of that. I'll just give it to you right now. But Jesus says no because he says, I'm not going to worship anybody but God. Well, I think temptation seems stronger when we are offered what we want or what we think we deserve by an easier path. But beware of what you sacrifice in order to get to what you think you own in a back way. You know, we're a worshiping people. We're designed to worship. We will worship anything. Uh, That means we make something ultimate in our lives. It could be fame and power, money. It could be pleasure. It could be success. It could be good looks. It could be ease. It could be comfort. It could be food. We will worship anything. And we worship something when we make it ultimate in our lives. Rebellion is when we make something else ultimate in our lives other than Jesus. Are you tempted to make something other than God the ultimate thing in your life? Is there something you want? Maybe something that's not necessarily bad. Something, nothing, something that other people wouldn't resent you for. In fact, they might say, oh, you deserve that. And you want it. And you start to take back roads or, you know, uh, uh shortcuts to get there because you think well it's okay for me to get this but what are you sacrificing along the way to do that so I would charge you to let Jesus rule on the throne of your hearts in everything you do and in every situation so the royal psalm reminds us that Jesus is God's anointed the one on the throne we can trust him one person wrote this he says since God's plan cannot be changed reversed or undone Since God is in complete control over every event and action in the universe, and since Jesus came to earth and took on flesh and lived a perfect life and died the preordained death, and since the gospel will accomplish everything God intended, and since the nations are given to the Son as as his inheritance, then our response as sons and daughters of King Jesus is, verse 11, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by him. So proper worship is worship of the Son. The Son is your only hope for salvation. So take refuge in him. That's how the psalm concludes. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. And blessed is the nation who sees God as a refuge rather than kick the chains off. As citizens of this country, we must be reminded that the nation that is blessed is the one whose God is is the Lord. Do you know where that begins? Lord, send a revival and let it begin where? In me. That's where revival begins. So rather than run away from God, take refuge in him. Don't scheme to undo his rule and reign. You take refuge in him and you will be blessed. Our Father in God, we thank you that we have the truths of this word to build our life upon we thank you, God, that we can trust you and take refuge in you rather than run away from you. I pray now as we come to respond that you would speak to our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God's moving in your heart. Hope you'll respond. Are you running to Jesus as a refuge? Are you running away from him? If you've never received him in salvation, the invitation is for today for you to respond. So if God's moving in your heart, whatever that might be, I'll be down front. You respond. You stand. As choir sings, you respond. So glad that you're here, and uh, of course we're looking forward to the celebration of liberty. I stole his microphone so that it didn't (laughs) pop on y'all, but uh, I know what he'd tell you is uh, if you don't have a ticket, find somebody who does. (laughs) So uh, I'm pretty sure they may have a few tickets. Maybe a few for 7:30 back. Judy, she already gone. She may have a few for 7:30 back in Washington. All right. So if you if not very many tickets left, but if they do, they'll be for seven thirty, and they'll be right back here, so you can pick those up. It's going to be a wonderful thing. You pray for it. We have a lot of guests that'll be here. Of course, uh, one of the special things is that we'll be able to have a lot of our. Um, Um, uh, Veterans, active duty, especially those who are now at Fort Jackson So you'll be praying for that, it's a great opportunity to have them here in our church Our middle schoolers just returned from Charleston where they were serving on mission And we're so thankful uh, for what they did down there And uh, you'll be praying this week, our Builders for Christ team is uh, leaving this weekend for Connecticut Where they'll be up there assisting a church that's I think building a sanctuary So you uh, pray for that as it's happening And uh, also coming up in just a couple weeks is our Vacation Bible School now you know this is an incredible outreach of our church and so you probably have uh, kids grandkids or neighbors that have kids or grandkids that you should invite to make sure they're here but let me just go and issue the challenge some of you have some time that week and you need to be here Because we need a lot of help, a lot of hands on deck as we just kind of serve and make this an enjoyable opportunity. But also because it's there that many kids may hear the gospel for the first time. And we're praying for many of them to respond. And so if you can volunteer to do that, you let them know in the office down the Children's Center. Um, I know they'd love to uh, uh, help find a place for you to serve that week. So um, anyways, glad you're here. And we got a lot to get going. So I'm going to ask you to stand. I'll pray the benediction. And uh, then we will be dismissed. Heavenly Father, it's such a blessing to be here in this church and with this body of believers. We thank you for uh, just the opportunity to worship and to be challenged by your word. So Lord, I pray now that you'd help us to apply it, to live the truth, to go and serve. It's in Christ's name we pray.